Welcome to Trapartisan Radio, brought to you by Trapar Books, Films and Editions. In today's episode of Trapartisan Radio, I will talk to Nina Antonia about her fascinating book Dancing with Salome, Courting the Uncanny with Oscar Wilde and Friends. Uh, Nina has also written the definitive biographies of Johnny Thunders, the New York Dolls and Peter Parrott. If you want to hear Nina talk more about the uncanny aspects of Oscar Wilde, please don't miss the upcoming Psychoanalysis, Art and the Occult event at Morbid Anatomy online uh, on April 24th. For more information about this event, please see the show notes for this episode that you're listening to right now. And now, straight into the world of Oscar Wilde, Lord Alfred Douglas and Nina Antonia. Welcome very much, Nina Antonia, to the Trapartisan Radio. Um, you are, of course, the uh, authoress of Dancing with Salome, Recording the Uncanny with Oscar Wilde and Friends that came out um, a couple of months ago. And uh, it's a wonderful book and one that sort of gives an insight into the not so well-known aspects of uh, Oscar Wilde and his relationship with uh, Lord Alfred Douglas and even some uh, you know, tangential uh, things with uh, Alistair Crowley. And it's just a very fascinating um, book containing many, many uh, I don't know, enticing, exciting, and and uh, curious um, literary <laughs> facts in a way. So I wonder how you yourself would sort of sum up the book for those who are curious. Quite, it's quite difficult, really, but I think it, it's sort of well. If you look at Dorian Gray, which is is a marvelous book, but it is also an occult book. And I'm not sure why it hasn't been looked at it in that way before. You know, he makes this, Dorian, the beautiful central character, makes this um, pledge to remain beautiful forever at, at the cost of his soul. And I think what, what else is interesting is when you realise the milieu that Wilde grew up in, both of his parents were folklorists, but his mother would also have um, creative salons in Ireland when Wilde was growing up. So you'd get people like Sheridan Fanu would drop in. And, and so these must have all, all been absorbed into young Oscar's subconscious. Mm, and absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Sheridan Le Fanu, as, as we know, um, wrote Camilla, which I think is the first sort of, one of the first same-sex vampire stories. And I think that would have had a knock-on effect with Dorian Gray as well. Absolutely. No, I think it's just uh, everyone has a background and it's not surprising in a way that he turned out so incredibly creative and also touching up on these topics uh, and you trace that so well in the book uh, like um, and 
literary detective in a way to see where these uh, things come from in his uh, in his writings. Um, I wonder what what was it initially that made you interested in uh, Oscar Wilde? Uh, well, I mean, everybody uses the words iconic now, but he is one of the sorts of iconic figures who looms above culture now. And there are many, many brilliant books written about Wilde. And I think as a non-establishment figure, you always have to look for a different way in. But also I felt that the uncanny aspects of his life had been ignored. I mean, it's his mother always felt that she'd heard the banshee wailing when his little sister died, which is ironic because Yeats, W.B. Yeats, another of Ireland's great literary figures, also had that experience when his younger brother died. Right. And... and uh... Uh, when you think about specifically those uh, uncanny aspects that you have sort of uh, um, gathered together in, in this uh, anthology, uh, are you still finding new angles or uh, Oscar Wilde topics that inspire you and that has this sort of uncanny um, flavor? No, I, th I think within um, Dancing with Salome are all the aspects of it. I get very impassioned to write something um, and I, I put everything into it that I can at the time, but once it's done, it's done. Right. right. I, think, I think what's what's interesting and what hadn't been done before, oops, I'm just trying to find something, is um, the campaign that Crowley led against Lord Alfred Douglas, it was almost a psychic campaign. Uh, I think he was very jealous of him and managing to decode one of Crowley's um, essays as well, which hadn't been done before. And yet, or, you know, you get, there are probably as many wild biographies as there are Crowley biographies. Mm -hmm. but if they're all written from the same perspective, they're all written by similar people, the academics of a certain background, then they're all going to follow a sort of the same order, aren't they? And then it becomes a self-congratulatory machinery where you can't go off the path, even if it's a great book. It has to follow set rules. And I think at, at the beginning of genres, that isn't the case, I think, because Lord Alfred Douglas has is, is become this hate figure now. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, followed Hollywood in that you have to have an evil protagonist. So one person is good and one person is very wicked. And that's now become Lord Alfred Douglas. And life isn't, isn't like that. Um, and I talked to... John Stratford, who's one of the people that runs the estate of Lord Alfred Douglas, and he said that people didn't start writing badly about Douglas until the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's that, like anything is a fashion and a fad because nobody is entirely angelic or entirely wicked. 
No, absolutely. And actually, that was one of the questions I had here is that um, to what extent you have been in touch uh, over the years with the wild uh, and dogless families or estates or communities. And I wonder, uh, because you mentioned now that you had with the dogless estate, but I wonder, did that lead to some revealing facts that you didn't have before, meaning that they provided something special for you? Other than the support of it, no. I think that there's been so many books written that there's nothing nothing left hidden anymore. Everything has been revealed. I'm I'm reminded of another of my famous writers. Do you know Saki? Yeah. S-A-K-I. Yes. Um, There was a story of a biographer of his going to see Saki's relatives. And um, they said, oh, there's nothing left of his stuff at all. And apparently the guy said, well, I'd just like to see the odd bits that you have. And there were just some empty tins. And apparently this guy started looking at the empty tins. And he was able to pull away a corner of the empty tins. And he found all these hidden notes of all the different liaisons Saki had had. All right. (laughs) Yeah. do you, I mean, one of the things that uh, is uh, touched upon in the book is this thing where uh, the supposed curse of the, the, the Douglas uh, family. And I wonder if you yourself believe that uh, Wilde's and uh, Douglas's relationship was cursed, or were they just victims of some kind of hypocritical or very prejudiced era? Oh, well, I think, I think. They were victims of the times, yes, and the terrible sort of blackmailers charter, which made, oh God, <laughs> which was just made life intolerable for gay men, and not so much women, but cut that bit out. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think back to what you were saying, but I think separately from that, they both came from very interesting lineages and there's a lovely academic called Therese Taylor wrote the introduction mm-hmm. and we were looking at Wilde's father what he did a few he was a folklorist he was an explorer but he did a few sort of uncanny no-nos as it were he apparently as a younger man he'd climbed up a pyramid in Egypt and mm-hmm. he'd his initials on there which of course is so disrespectful yeah. Yeah. I got, goodness knows what he was invoking in that careless act or brought back mm. um, and what else Therese points out is how there are patterns to curses and whilst father William his life ended up very very similar to Oscars in that they appear to be very successful, but in the end, through their own folly, they lose everything. The other very interesting thing, I think, because I'm very interested in folklore is, um, you're not supposed to build on a site where fairies have been or lived or is special to them, or they had one of the trees that they danced around. Mm -hmm. And William Wilde, built a house called Moitora um, as the, and he did this on the site of one of the most prominent 
battles between the di different factions of the Irish furries. Mm. And there's all these different standing stones apparently in the area. And I thought, he knows that you're supposed to leave this area as sacrosanct, and yet he built a house in the middle of it. It just seemed very, very, um, as if there's one thing that you write in a book, but you don't need to carry it out in your own life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, what do you think that uh, Oscar Wilde himself would have thought of uh, your writings and, and this book specifically? I mean, he he probably would have liked it because it's, I hope, it's quite romantic in a way and it shares his view because uh, I think he turned down an invitation to a club called the 13 Club, um, which was specifically to debunk folklore. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he wrote back to the people that were running the club um, let us have a little romance in our lives, you know, let us believe in all this magic and wonder. And he did create in his books a world of magic and wonder. So why pull it down? Mm -hmm. I, I think I think it's very interesting because you get, if the Wilds family were cursed through the actions of William Wilde, then you have a very uncanny and similar thing with Lord Alfred Douglas and his ancient family of Scottish chieftains, mm -hmm. which is, I hope you enjoyed reading about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Quite something. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the beauty and one of the very, very interesting things about um, nobility is that their, their history is uh, in one part um, slightly more romanticized, but it actually exists more so than for, for common folks because um, history writing was always about these kinds of battles and wars and, you know, fairly objective history writing and then added with the stardust of a great deal of mythologizing um, romanticism. Uh, but it's true. I mean, it's some, some families <laughs> do seem cursed in the sense that uh, everything goes wrong and even though they're powerful and and uh, it's like a pantheon of gods, I mean, like Greek gods in a way, yeah. who are very human-like, uh, but at the same time, they're playing out uh, the very worst of human foibles and, you know, psychological patterns and definitely the death drive. And, you know, um, so this seems to have been, the Douglases seem to have been sort of similar. It's like a huge historical soap opera with a very dark twist in a way. But, but I wonder you know, if this the dark twist that the people live out now, and Wilde mentions this, that, that in fact, are, are we just shadow puppets to something that's happened centuries before, but we have to live it out. I mean, even, even when I was writing one of the essays that's in Salome, uh, one of the tabloids was something like Curse of Ancient Family Strikes Again, <laughs> you know, with people living now. Yeah. So it's just gone on and on and on, but it hasn't all been added up in in a whole, which I think is is what I did and said, well, it's part of this thread that goes back mm -hmm. hundreds of years. Where does it begin? Well, apparently um, Scottish parents used to warn their children if they were naughty that I think it was oh, there's a big grey Douglas will come and get you, like, like the bogeyman, because they were so fierce. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and their great wealth, the beautiful castles which had to be sold, were were built sort of on on battle bloody battlefields. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very Shakespearean in a way. I'm thinking, of course, of you know Macbeth and those kinds of of uh, dramas that are uh, they are dramas, but they're also historically anchored in a way in actual things that were going mm. on. And and I when I read your book at, this, at about the same time, there was this new uh, movie, uh, the film rendition of. Uh, Hamlet that is great. I, I don't know if you've seen that, the black and white one, but it's just... Uh, oh, no, no, no. Who, is, who is that? Uh, I think it's, that? I wonder if it's uh, Francis McDormand plays Lady Macbeth and Denzel Washington okay. plays uh, uh, Lord Macbeth. Uh, I think it's one of the Coen brothers who uh, directed it. And it's really fantastic. It's very theatrical and it's in black and white. And it just gives you... Mm. Uh, a chill because it's so psychologically poignant. And again, you know, um, I knew that film was coming out and I, I saw it, we saw it at about the same time as uh, Salome, uh, the book came out and it was, it's like, whoa, these Scottish people, they, they, they were really something, you know, they were not nice. And, and um, well, I guess the, the, these lords weren't nice anyway. And, and uh, for me, it's, I can see what you're saying also is that, you know, we all carry something forward, whether we can call it a genetic memory or whether it's a historical memory that becomes enhanced over time. Uh, but we seemingly cannot escape the, uh, what our ancestors have done. You know, even if we don't know it rationally or consciously, it's still there in there, you know, in, in the genetic memory or in the, perhaps even the soul, you know. So I, I had an interesting, I think an interesting conversation of something that I never knew um, because I was mentioning Salome to somebody um, and they're quite a religious person. And apparently there are some priests which will lift ancient family curses. So it is something that's, believed in but like many things it's not talked about now and as we move into more and more secular thinking then it does concern me that, that the invisible realm which is so full of folklore visions mysticism the door will be closed even firmer than it is now mm -hmm. Mm, which will have uh, weird effects too, I would say. <laughs> you know, you, 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 that's, you, oh, that's a very good way of looking at it, yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> it's not a door that you can keep closed. Never, long. never, <laughs> you know, never. It swings both ways, as they say. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking, uh, uh, would you say that there is, or is there someone of a similar spirit or stature today, like Oscar Wilde in, in our culture today? Not really, because if, if he and Lord Alfred Douglas were sort of breaking apart taboos, if that taboo mm. is no longer exists, then I don't think so. There's, everybody is so keen to follow fashion, I think, especially because of the internet, then nobody's allowed to run the wrong way. And back in that day, then Wilde and Douglas would have been seen as going in the wrong direction, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And also at the at the risk of their own life. I mean, quite literally, you know, this, as you yeah. say, it's like we live in, uh, for good or bad, we live in completely different times. And it's very hard to create some um, real shockwaves. You know, you'd have to uh, actually go criminal in order to, to transgress almost. 
but but for them, I think it was um, they were very. Well, they uh, were considered criminal, though, weren't they? Yes, you're right. They and were the criminal. Because, yeah, yeah. So so, um, but then um, and I think I, I agree. I mean, I'm trying to think also, but there's really no one that comes to mind because everyone is so bland. You know, everyone is you know, mm. whether it's actors or or uh, artists or there's there's really no controversy that hasn't been strategized or marketed by some you know consultants. Almost, it's so commodified and and uh, I don't know corporate friendly in a way. So good for you, Oscar Wilde. <laughs> Even though it ended badly, at least we talk about you still. But, I mean, I also think, you know, that thing of Will Smith having to leave all the Oscars societies <laughs> yeah. and everything because he, he got upset. I don't know if it was a prank, but he shouldn't have been forced to leave. I mean, yeah. I just, you know, it's like they would have... Errol Flynn would never have gotten a job now. <laughs> no, oh, no. None of the sort of swashbucklers, bad boys of old. You have to be so polite. It's really bizarre. Perhaps you and Vanessa are better at shedding light on this than I am. How we've managed to walk ourselves into such a conservative corner yeah. and led by young people not realizing that they're being very conservative. It's right. most odd. Yeah, no, it, it truly is. It truly is. But uh, if we look back at. Um, other projects that you've been involved with, you know, you, you're well known for having written, you know, the Johnny Thunders biography, but also Peter Parrott and, and other people. And I'm curious, can you yourself see a, a red thread going from your work on people like Thunders and Parrott and Oscar Wilde? I, th I think in, in a sense, probably Oscar Wilde is the biggest person that I've I've written about it's it's always I I like subjects that are somehow marginalized um or not everybody knows about but enough do that it makes a difference and um there's a semi-autobiographical account of growing up in glam that's going to come out in a, a limited edition mm. later this year and um the chap that wrote the introduction to it is from an LA sort of post-punk band called The Adolescents. Mm. And he said to me, I was so, it was so fantastic for me to be able to read about Johnny Thunders and Peter Parrott when I was growing up in Los Angeles, that somebody actually took the time to write about them. Um, Johnny, especially, poor Johnny in death, he's uh, more famous than ever. Mm. And his cult grows with every passing year. And it's difficult for, young people 18 19 to quite grasp that he wasn't sort of he was always Johnny Thunders he had a dedicated fan base but the establishment had sort of washed their hands of him we were beginning the long walk to the conservatism that we find now where people apologize all the time yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and it's it's uh, it's very interesting um i'm going to return to your uh, biography of, of thunder soon i haven't read it in in many years but we have it here and uh, because i remember of course um uh, johnny thunders uh, quite vividly because he was uh, living in stockholm for for quite a while and i remember not only okay. seeing seeing shows but also uh, like seeing him uh, on the subway and stuff like that and i already then of course i was super immersed in 
specifically, I think the American punk rock or the rock that preceded the punk, you know, Iggy and the Stooges and of course, New York Dolls and things like that. So it's kind of fascinating yeah. to see him in a fairly bad shape, I have to say, in Stockholm, but at least trying to, to uh, get on a better uh, note to see that these, again, de demigods were actually quite, quite, quite human. That was an eye-opener for me in many ways. And of course, there were you know, some fantastic concerts too. So he tried. He tried hard. But I'm wondering... What I was just going to say, of course, in he caused quite a furore. He was in, in all the Swedish tabloids. Yes. He was a bad boy for a month or something. <laughs> yeah, truly. I still remember that vividly. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. But, but uh, again, you know, it just gives you... Uh, a new perspective on what it means to have been like a real rock star and then coming to terms with where do I go next in a way. So it's, it's um, it, it brings some kind of human drama to, to it all. But I'm wondering also, because what I was after with the previous question was that, you know, you can see a red thread or I can see a red thread in the sense that these people, wild parrot thunders, they are, um, not outcasts, to some degree they become outcasts, but from the very beginning, they're sort of outsiders. They are non-compromising non yeah. outsiders who are very determined to you know, have their vision and, and play the music the way they want to play the music or write and also live uh, in a partnership with Bosi. And you know, it's like, there's really no compromise. And I'm wondering if that's the thing that you find attractive in these people. Of course, of course it is that they are, they are at odds with the society that they find themselves in, just as I am as, at odds with the society that I find myself in. So this is why I'm so interested in these people, even Lionel Johnson, who introduced Wilde to Lord Alfred Douglas and who gets sort of written out of the mainframe in, in the sort of Wilde story, but was as much a part of it as anybody. Everybody, they were all sort of, fighting for freedom of expression and to live as they wanted to live. And that's very, very hard. Always, absolutely. And, and therefore, I think uh, the reason, you know, they did that, that's the reason why we're still talking about them today. You know, they are, they, are they have become timeless beacons in a way, like so many other people. Um, and I'm thinking again of, you know, a generational buddy like Crowley, for instance, uh, who even, you know, created his own philosophy and possibly some kind of re religion also about it, you know, the importance of staying true to your uh, vision and your will. So I think those people are very, very important and, and almost it doesn't really matter what kind of art they're, you know, uh, creating. It's just a kind of an attitude or a spirit that they carry. I oh, do think it matters what art they create. Because it's got to carry their message. Oh, absolutely. But what I mean is it doesn't matter if you're a painter or a musician or a, or a writer. Oh, yeah, it can yeah. still be contained. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's the that's medium of, I suppose, rebellion. But that's become such an overused word as well, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And commercialized. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm thinking very early on in your life uh, and you when you decided to to uh, become a writer and you you were on that path I'm curious did you have a, a mentor or a muse or some kind of support to to guide you none I've never had any I don't have an agent even <laughs> well you've done fine so far uh because I <laughs> 
yes and no. I've stuck to my vision and I've written about who I wanted to write about. But as you you know, which is why I love what you've been, developed with Vanessa, it's very hard to go out there with, with a different voice or a solitary voice. And I think it's even harder for a woman. Uh, before we spoke, I was thinking about society actually does fear individuals. Mm. There's a type of <laughs> actually corporate individuality that people will go, well, and I'm not knocking people with tattoos, but that person's got tattoos and they've got piercings and they've got funny hair. So they've got to be an individual. But in fact, it's again, it's following a pattern. To be an individual is actually to be quite alarming and disarming. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking of a funny cartoon I saw it was many years ago. Now today it's just a, a drawing uh, of a circus tent which had a sign outside, come, come and see the untattooed lady. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, that is the, to the point, you know. Uh, but, but of course, you know, people are, are uh, very prone, uh, maybe more so today than ever before, to, to buy into a lifestyle and, a, and an identity or, or whatever you want to call it. And it's, uh, I don't think there's anything we can do about it uh, other than, of course, promote real individuals who, who've really, well, like in this case with, with Wild, basically sacrifice their lives to, to uh, uphold that uh, integrity. Yeah. Yeah. And also curious. Learn from it. At least we can learn from, from their wonderful art and you know Dorian what's fascinating is Wilde's sort of vampire-ish character is if you look at how many Dorian Grays there have been it's quite staggering yeah 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 no absolutely I mean it's it's a also it's a it's a new kind of rendition of of um, of an older uh, let's call it a European myth too, you know, the Faustian, where you sort of yeah, uh, yes. sell, sell your soul in a way. I mean, it's obviously something that has been on uh, the Western mind for a long, 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 long time and that has expressed itself as, um, I don't know, part of monotheism in a way, or maybe that's a later creation uh, in the sense that, you know, there's good and bad and to achieve something that is not traditionally good but that you still want to have you have to sell a portion of yourself to the bad <laughs> it's almost like, like some kind of you yeah. know barter system drenched in or based in um, a very binary kind of morality but of course that's also what makes the shadow side so important and i think uh, wild was certainly aware of that and he decided to go uh, public in a way with his uh, not only his you know uh, homosexuality but being in a homosexual relationship in in public you know that was his transgression and his not only eradicating the the dark side of the shadow but uh, uniting with it you know at a high cost again because times weren't good for that kind of behavior but he was certainly audacious and and daring and brave to, to I do that i think though i think it was the the meeting with lord alfred douglas that made it that way because his first sort of partner was Robbie Ross mm -hmm. who became his executor and yeah. <laughs> and was Bosie's enemy and I think with Ross 
he could have continued in his relationship with him, it would have been discreet and balanced forever. Yeah. But it was um, Bosie that was the spark and his muse. Mm. Yeah. And that made, and yeah. actually made it kind of, I suppose, combustible or inflammable or dangerous. <laughs> yeah, those are very good words in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, I think in a way Wilde needed him to set the spark. I mean, it was obviously, what do they call it in France? Amour fou, is it? A-M-O-U-R-F-O-U, crazy mm -hmm. love. Yeah, yeah, I'm all for yeah. Because yeah. it's destructive, but it's passionate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm thinking when when you work, um, I'm sure you have many you know ideas and projects in your mind uh, going in parallel or sort of percolating, both um, uh, in many places. But I'm curious about whether you prefer to work on uh, essays or articles, like in the book Dancing with Salome, or if you prefer longer uh, book projects like you know it's going to be a book from the start I, I honestly don't mind I'm sort of how can I say Dancing with Salome happened organically because I, I'd written these different essays it, it I didn't think about it too much how how was I going to structure it it just happened and I was fascinated by Wilde and his milieu and I found out all these different things I thought well, this could fit very nicely together but it was it was accidental or my subconscious was doing the work for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well good 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 for your unconscious subconscious <laughs> We, we are great, greatly appreciative of that because it is a wonderful, yes. wonderful book. And I'm, I'm wondering also, uh, have there, you know, um, throughout the years, uh, have there been projects that you would have liked to do but have simply never happened yet? Oh, I mean, I think everything is about timing. I really shopped around an eco project at one time right. and nobody was interested. But I think that the my timing was off. It was it was. Because every every artist has their seasons when they're in favour and when they're not. Mm -hmm. I was never ahead of myself on that one. I, I mean, and then another thing that I feel like I'm fighting that you fight with with the establishment is is they set up certain rules. I had a meeting with a very big publishing company, and the guy ahead of it. There's somebody writing about New York punk for them. Mm. And he said to me, oh, this guy writes for Rolling Stone and he's an academic. When the book came out, all the material that had been sourced in there was from my work. <laughs> wow. But the head of this big publishing company would have wouldn't have considered me as worthy for them because... I wasn't an academic and I hadn't written for Rolling Stone. Right. Yeah, that's horrible. Horrible. <laughs> Whoa. Isn't it? But, yeah. but there again, that's that's why I am grateful to you and Vanessa and to Trap Art and to Jez Press and to Stranger Tractor who've all put mm -hmm. my work out because yeah. there is very thriving alternative independent publishing scene now. It's very rich. Yeah, no, I love it too. And I, I feel very, very pleased with everything. Um, because, uh, again, you know, I know certainly the, the we call it the hegemonial uh, tyranny of, of the academic world, because uh, so much of 
you know, the topics that I'm interested in, the occult or occulture and, you know, um, the arca history of or, or arcane things, uh, it's almost like it's been co-opted by academia. And, you know, it's very, 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 and you try to read the books, but they're so boring because they're not really authors. You know, they're collectors of information that they evaluate and try to assess or, or, or figure out new I don't know, deductions, but it's not really deductive material, is it? It's it's about the, you know, human spirit seeking um, uh, in connection with survival instincts, uh, finding new ways, new paths of, of behavior. And that's not always best summed up in academic uh, books. So that's why I'm happy with the Fenris Wolf that you've been writing for, for instance, the, the chapter of, of about uh, Bosi and, and Crowley. Uh, and, you know, to have this open-minded... Yes, eclectic difficult article in a way to place and yet Fenris Wolf was so perfect for it. It was a yeah. perfect platform. Yeah, I agree. It should just be open-minded, eclectic and, and uh, you know, um, have a free-flowing spirit that is inclusive. And, and that's kind of, I wouldn't say it's contrary to academic ideals, but it's certainly more poetic in its attitude, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, then, I know. I don't know. I don't know what we could, we can do with these big mainstream publishers and that because academia is wonderful and we need it, but it is not always creative or poetic. No, as no you truly. But yeah, all we can do is just uh, carry on with uh, writing things and publishing things that interest us, that fills us with uh, passion. I think that's the key yes. because that passion is uh, infectious and it will, you know, uh, sow little seed in, in the, at least a fraction of the readers. And that can sometimes be enough to change things. So I think uh, we just stick with uh, what we do. Yes, well, I've always felt that I haven't had a choice and... I have never thought about the money. It has always been about this is something I feel passionate about, and I, I just want to, to throw it out there into the breeze. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, to, what about what about today? What what are you working on on uh, right now? I am working on another book, but I never ever say what it's about when it's in progress. It's a superstition that I developed. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's fine. So, but that that's a book book project. You have it in mind uh, right now as it's going to be one book and not uh, like an article or essay. No, I think I think it's it's definitely a book book. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm I'm always up for doing sort of you know writing shorter things, and I hope to be setting some um, of my poetry to music so i'll let you know more about that as it happens yeah wonderful wonderful and where um if people want to find out more about your work where, where should they go well they could ask, always ask you but i do have a website um it is www.ninaantoniaauthor.com Beautiful. And I know uh, that takes people to into the, um, your past works and what you're working on and uh, how to contact you. So that's a great, uh, great place to begin to uh, get into Nina Antonia's world. So basically, I'm, Nina... Oh, I'm also on Twitter. Can I say I'm, I'm at Nina course. Antonia? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, could you say that again? Nina Antonia 13. That's right. That's right. And, and I strongly encourage people to, uh, you know, get in touch with Nina. 
And um, I think those were all the questions that uh, I had. Is there something that you want to add specifically uh, about Dancing with Salome? Um, not really, except I was grateful to Therese Taylor for her wonderful introduction. And also the cover artwork is amazing. Yeah, Eli John, it's fantastic. Isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? I mean, he he's done some big projects. I think he did a centipede, um, Great God Pan, and he's um, illustrated M.R. James, but this took him in a bit more of a sort of decadent romantic direction, and he said that he'd enjoyed doing it, and I was very pleased with it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. No, it's a great, great, great uh, image. So, well, Nina, it's right. been a ple pleasure. Thank you for talking to Tripartisan Radio, and I'm sure we'll be in touch uh, not uh, one time, but many times in the future. So thank well, you again. I want All to right. thank you and <laughs> this wonderful universe that you've created and thank you for putting Salome out there. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. You're a star in our universe always. Oh, and you are a galaxy. <laughs> Lots of love. Love and peace. Take care. Right. Take care. Bye. 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 For more information about all our books, films and editions, please visit www.trapar.net that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T trapar.net you can also sign up for our newsletter at the site I recommend that you do that so you get all the news immediately please also visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's patreon.com slash Vanessa 23 Carl. Thank you very much for listening. Until the next time, bye bye.